Ethics is, among other things, about the actions, omissions and character traits of moral agents. To be a moral agent requires various skills and capacities, but where do these come from and how do we acquire them? One way to start asking this question is to ask a more general question. How do humans learn to do new things at all? How do we acquire, both collectively and individually, the capacity to do things that we couldn't do before, such as navigate an unfamiliar landscape or manipulate our environment with tools? One partial answer to this question is that we do so through the development and acquisition of different sorts of cognitive tools, including everything from language to compasses and maps. But how do simple tools like a map help to transform us into modern, complex human agents who are capable of acting ethically. I'm your host, Associate Professor Paul Formosa, and welcome to In the Cave, an ethics podcast. Here to help us think about these issues today is Professor Richard Minari. Richard is an executive member of the Macquarie University Research Centre for Agency, Values and Ethics, or CAVE, and a professor in the Department of Philosophy here at Macquarie University. Richard, welcome to In the Cave. Thanks, Paul. Delighted to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So along with fellow CAVE member Alex Gillette, you recently published an article in the journal Topics in Cognitive Science comparing some different accounts of cognitive tools and how we acquire them. So I guess the best place for us to start is, could you tell us what exactly is a cognitive tool and why we should care at all? Okay, good. I think a good place to start is in distinguishing between tools that are designed to aid in a physical or practical task. So we can call those practical tools. So those are things that help us to cut things or hit things. Uh, if we were going to build or if we were cutting some meat or preparing some vegetables to cook. So simple tools that we would have had for tens of thousands of years as humans. By contrast, cognitive tools have been made to aid in completing cognitive tasks. So they have a very different purpose. So what do I mean by a cognitive task? Well, I mean something like trying to remember something, something where we need to exercise a cognitive capacity or a cognitive skill. So trying to remember something, trying to perceive something, but where our perceptual apparatus our eyes or our ears perhaps need a little augmenting or a little help to be able to detect things that we wouldn't normally be able to detect, to calculate or to quantify or to reason through a problem. Now, it's certainly true that a lot of those cognitive tasks will exist without cognitive tools, and there will be lots of examples of cultures and individuals who will happily complete cognitive tasks without the aid of cognitive tools. But in some cases, and for some levels of complexity concerning cognitive problems, we function better with those cognitive tools. And as we'll see, there are different ways of thinking about how those cognitive tools can be involved in our cognitive lives. I think that one of the most important things that we need to think about with cognitive tools is that they often represent something complex about reality. And that's why number systems or writing systems are very good core examples of cognitive tools. So cognitive tools, they help us do cognitive tasks. Okay, makes sense. And they can be a range of things from navigating an environment, completing Sudoku puzzles, reasoning ethically with our children. Now, you argue that, there, as you sort of suggested before, there's different views about uh, how we can explain cognitive tools, how we acquire them, what they look like, and so on. And you call these the enculturation, scaffolding, and offloading models. So could you tell us what those three models are? Good. Yeah, I think offloading is really easy to grasp. It's an example where we have a complex task. It's quite difficult to do just using our own mental resources as such. And so we might look for some kind of support or help from the environment. So a really easy example of that is writing out a list to remember. A shopping list, for example, 
to remember what you've got to buy when you go into Coles or Woolworths. But there are more complex versions of that because there are things that we might want to do that are difficult to do in the head as such, such as mental calculations or computations. And indeed, even remembering directions and where to go. And so number systems, arithmetic, and maps are good examples of cognitive tools where, because those kind of things are quite complex, we need the support from the environment to be able to complete them. So it sound, the offloading approach sounds quite reasonable. It sounds intuitive, perhaps yep. even, in the sense that we might just make the environment a repository for some of the information or complexity that we need to process to think well. And I think the problem with it is that it doesn't say anything about how we get to do that. So it doesn't say anything about how we manipulate that external, in scare quotes, information or how this affects us and how it influences the way that we think and the skills that we have. So I think there's a, a kind of worry about the offloading approach, which has been around since Plato, actually, who wrote about concerns about the alphabet as having a particular kind of effect on our cognitive capacities. And the effect is that it's an, atro an atrophying effect. So it reduces our cognitive capacity rather than augments it or improves it. So offloading things onto the environment is bad because it takes those capacities or those skills and it puts them out there rather than keeping them in, them in the head. And this sounds tantamount to a kind of dumbing down or a de-skilling. If you can't remember things without a, le a list, then, well, you haven't got a very good memory. If you can't do mental calculations in your head, well, you're not very good at maths and so on. And I think that's a big worry for the offloading approach, and it's symptomatic of the fact that the offloading approach doesn't really explain exactly how those tools are related to our capacities. And it opens up the space for that kind of criticism, which is, isn't this just a kind of dumbing down or a de-skilling? So that's why I think, or Alex and I try to argue in the article and elsewhere, that Offloading is not the best way to understand cognitive tools and how they influence us. So the second approach is more interesting in that sense, and that's the scaffolding approach. So I think a little bit of background on the scaffolding approach is important. So there's a metaphor, clearly, at work, which is a scaffold. And we know what scaffolding is as a physical tool. Yep. It's something that supports the edifice of a building, usually temporarily and usually when some sort of building work is going on. So in a sense, it's a sort of developmental support or structure. So scaffolding was the terminology that was used in the context of developmental psychology. It was introduced by Jerome Bruner, I think, back in the 1960s. But it was really a kind of translation of some of the work that the Soviet psychologist Lev Vygotsky had done a few decades before that, where Vygotsky talked about the zone of proximal development. And what he was after with that was the way that children were bootstrapped or supported by caregivers or experts to learn various kinds of skills. It might be literacy, it might be numeracy, it might be other kinds of skills. But the idea of the zone of the proximal development was that the child in those developmental zones with those experts would be capable of doing things or learning how to do things that they wouldn't be able to do on their own. So the scaffolding idea there in the developmental context is that in the learning process, we learn how to do something that we weren't able to do before. 
And I think that's a much more interesting way of thinking about the potential role of cognitive tools. Uh, it, we think about it developmentally, but the problem with scaffolding as a metaphor is it has this kind of temporary aspect to it. So it's um, entirely temporary in nature. And it's a support that you would lose once you've learned how to do something like to count or to write. And the enculturation approach takes a rather different view, which is that once you've gone through the scaffolding process or the zone of proximal development, then the scaffolds actually become integrated into extending the metaphor a bit, the edifice, and becomes part of it. And it doesn't go away. So, in that sense, when you learn how to write out equations on paper with a pen, that's a capacity that doesn't go away. So it's not like offloading, which is you only write things down when you can't do it in your head, because that's where everything is that's important. And it's not like scaffolding in the sense that it's simply temporary. It's just what you do when you're learning at school, because we do continue to use pen and paper or variations of it throughout our lives. And that's because we've acquired the abilities to be able to manipulate numbers by writing them out in sequences and orders and applying operations to them. Or we've learned how to write structured arguments or structured lists of things that have to happen on particular occasions over time. And we've learned how to deploy those at the right time to be able to complete complex tasks. And that's something that doesn't go away. In which case, offloading is problematic. Scaffolding is great, and it gives us that insight into the idea of development and transformation. But then enculturation gives us the idea that that transformation is something that is long-lasting. Okay, that's excellent. Really, really well described. So I guess I want to look at these three accounts and, and look at a couple of examples and sort of see how they, they operate a little bit. So you talk quite a bit in the paper about maps. And I think you know your three models actually look at that quite nicely. We don't really offload direction-seeking to maps. Uh, and it's not really a scaffold we throw away. As you sort of show in the paper, it sort of completely changes our way of thinking about navigation. We get this kind of top-down view that we can't get outside of the sort of the way of thinking that the map inculcates into us. So I think, I think acculturation sort of captures that nicely, the way it's sort of transformed. As you say, it's sort of the scaffolding sort of stays there. I think, I think that's nice. So I guess I want to think about some other cases um, and see if it works so well in other cases as well. So uh, what about the example of a, a GPS, right? So with a map, to use it at all, you've kind of got to understand a little bit about how map works and how to, how to see the world. Otherwise, you can't even use it. But GPS is, is not quite like that. You can just type address into your phone, blindly follow it. So I, I guess one of the things, is, is that naive case for GPS users, does that count as enculturation or something else? And I suppose we can compare it to a more sophisticated user, user of GPS technology who understands uh, what GPS stands for, he understands how it works, he understands, you know, it's completely changed his way of thinking about the world. He now thinks it's got a GPS coordinates and when he sort of works, walks around the world or something like that. This does look much more like enculturation, sort of changes the way they think about the world. So I guess, is the correct account of cognitive tools, does it depend on the technology? Does it depend on the use of the technology? Or is it always enculturation? Or, or what do you say about those cases? That's great. I think those are nice examples. So I think with the GPS and map example, one way that we in the paper try to differentiate between a more sort of problematic offloading approach and an enculturation approach is through the idea of what we call cognitive practices. So here. We're thinking of a practice in the way that anthropologists think about it, which is this is a pattern of repeatable actions where there's a right and a wrong way to do something. So it has a kind of normativity to it. So what we're learning and what we're acquiring in that scaffolding period with regard to cognitive tools is these cognitive practices. The cognitive practices are about 
how to interpret the tools, which are often themselves representational or symbolic in nature, but also then how to physically manipulate them and deploy them to complete various tasks. Now, the thing that's interesting about the kind of GPS example is that it is a kind of outsourcing of that. So here is an interesting kind of mirror image of the example you gave, which is that, say I have a a complex bit of accounting to do. Um, I need to work out. As we do. (laughs) (laughs) As we do. I'm afraid more increasingly. Um, As we do. I can either do that myself if I know how to do it. If I have the right cognitive practices, I can, I can work that out for myself. But another way of dealing with it is to outsource the problem. So I give it to you or I give it to an accountant. Thanks, Richard. And that, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's then done by them. So a calculator or a GPS has an element of that. So with a calculator, there's still the case that you have to punch numbers in and know what the operators are. But the calculator itself, you're outsourcing the calculation to the calculator to do it accurately. Similarly with the GPS, you've got to be able to write in the location of where you want to go. But then the reading of the map and giving you the directions is done by the algorithm. So you're outsourcing the problem or the guts of the problem, as it were, to the technology. And that's distinct from the idea that in manipulating those symbols or those representations yourself in reading the map and plotting out where you're going to go and how you're going to get there, you're doing the cognitive work yourself. And you're doing it by deploying those cognitive practices to interpret and manipulate the symbols in front of you. And I think that's a a key distinction between something which is really a kind of form of outsourcing and something which requires some cognitive skill and ability on your part to manipulate the, the cognitive tools. And that's where I think there's potentially some interesting tension in how we think of cognitive tools and what the role of cognitive tools are in development, for example, particularly as we begin to move into educational contexts where children aren't necessarily taught how to manipulate those symbols in the way that they were in the past, but are taught how to outsource them to calculators or computers, etc. And in principle, that is the kind of fear that Plato imagined 2,500 years ago. And I think there's, there's an interesting debate there just within the developmental educa- uh, educational psychology and developmental psychology about what children really need to learn in those contexts. But then potentially there's also another issue even with regard to adults and their use of GPS technology and what effects that have over time. So I think that kind of literature is developing and it's, it's quite interesting. And I think the kind of enculturation approach that we take here potentially has a role to play in that debate. Well, let's explore that a little bit further. So look, a recent technology that obviously has large implications for our cognitive work is artificial intelligence or AI. And often this is described as a movement from automating sort of physical blue collar labor to automating more white collar cognitive tasks. And, and this debate often describes this in terms of offloading and de-skilling more is, um, which, which you've sort of talked about, but often those literatures actually don't sort of connect with one another, which is a bit of a shame. So as we sort of offload, I guess, more and more cognitive and more advanced cognitive tasks onto AIs, whether that be recommending a song to us, allocating resources efficiently, diagnosing diseases, ranking CVs, uh, even making moral decisions for us, what sort of, what what can the, I guess, the enculturation literature sort of tell us about some of the dangers of that? In particular, you know, offloading, do, do we sort of not get the sort of transformation of our sort of cognitive architecture, I suppose? And is there, is there kind of ways we can sort of address some of these concerns? Yeah, good. So I think that really comes back to 
the idea of development. So I think actually the moral agency question is quite interesting. Yeah. So with regard to AI making decisions for us, there is a genuine concern that if that became the norm and we didn't learn how to do that, that's something that we just would no longer have a capacity to do if that cognitive tool wasn't there to do it for us. That's a potential really serious de-skilling of humans and a relationship to cognitive technology which has the potential to be harmful to humans when we think of humans in terms of their capacities and their capabilities. So also because this is a fast developing and early developing area to be thinking in terms of things like enculturation, I think in the last five to 10 years, the thoughts have been more about trying to get clear about what cognitive practices actually are in these contexts and how we ought to properly think about our relationship to cognitive tools. But now that work's been done, I think it is important to start deploying it to some of the more automated forms of cognitive tools. So pen and paper, even writing things out on a computer, typing, those are things that we still have to do and we have to learn how to do them. And we have to be able to read what's in front of us. Whereas giving information to an AI, which then goes off, does the work and comes back to us with an answer, that's a black box for most of us, even for programmers, I think. It's a black box. We don't exactly know how those decisions have been made or whether they're the right ones. And that, I think, is problematic if we no longer have the resources to be able to question, scrutinize, and evaluate the processes by which we go from premises to a conclusion in moral arguments, for example. That would be a potentially a, a catastrophic loss for human beings if we allow technology to take on those roles. But there again, I don't see that that has to be the outcome of the role of AI. So I'm not going to be a platonic doomsayer about technology. <laughs> I just think that we need to be able to talk around the kinds of skills and abilities that people need to be to effectively use or interact with AI. We shouldn't lose the critical ability to be able to think about what we're being told when AI gives us certain results. And that, I think, means that developing those cognitive practices and developing those cognitive practices as adults as well by going to university, for example, or by reading or thinking for ourselves is, is crucially important. And it's something that we should not lose as an aim for our own personal development or indeed at a social and cultural level as well. Fantastic stuff, Richard. That's really, really interesting. Really appreciate that discussion. Look, our moral agency, as Richard said, clearly depends on a range of underlying cognitive skills and tools, the ability to think and reason critically for yourself and so on. And the question of what they are and how we acquired them is thus of critical importance and also the question of what can interfere with their development and acquisition. As our powers of agency are built on and independent with a range of technologies from calculators to language and AI, and as technology changes us and our agency and we change technology, we need to continue to think about what sort of skills we offload and what sort of skills we shouldn't offload and why. But look, that's all we have time for today. If you want to read Richard's paper, there'll be links in the show notes. Thank you very much for your time. And this podcast has been a presentation of the Macquarie University Research Centre for Agency, Values and Ethics, or CAVE. And I've been your host, Associate Professor Paul Fenderson.